Hello, and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. In this episode, the writer Kathy Unsworth will be in conversation with the artist and author Jenny Haval. Jenny Haval is a Norwegian singer-songwriter, record producer, musician, and novelist who has released seven albums, including Blood Bitch, Apocalypse Girl, and Innocence is Kinky. She's also the author of two novels, Paradise Rot and Girls Against God, which were both published by Verso Books in 2018 and 2020, respectively. She'll be talking to Kathy Unsworth, who is the author of six novels and the co-author of Define Gravity, The Life and Times of Punk Icon Jordan. She's also worked as a journalist and contributed to many publications, including 14 Times, The Guardian and Mojo. Her book, Bad Penny Blues, is a piece of true crime fiction that follows the murder of a group of women who perform sex work in 50s and 60s London, and that will be published in the coming weeks by Strange Tractor Press. In the following discussion, they discuss the interweaving of literature and music, the occult, and their shared subcultural affinities. So, with introductions out of the way, I'll pass over to Jenny and Kathy. I've got a place that I thought we could start from, which was, I think we've got quite a few things in common, even though we've not met each other before. And Jenny, one of your reviewers described Girls Against God as being about the strength and solidarity of despised women. This is very much what Bad Penny Blues is about and about what most of my work is about. So maybe we could start off with you giving our listeners a bit of a pricey on on what Girls Against God is about and what your thoughts on that very subject are. Mm. So I do think that I wanted to, I mean, as a, as a musician, I have spent a lot of time thinking about what an artistic network is and what, what a community is. And I think I realized at some point many years ago, I mean, I always knew this, but I started traveling with more women in my band and that was not in itself, you know, it's not, it's always about the people, but there was something that those women contributed with because they were, they were also not musicians. They were two American um, visual artists, a filmmaker and a visual artist. And it was just so amazing to have, um, for me, to have an interpretation of what's going on during like a piece of music happening on stage because they were sort of sort of musicians who didn't play instruments on stage with me doing maybe some visual stuff. Maybe they created some films that we were sort of showing or interacting with. They were doing a bit of performance. They were singing karaoke. And so I think that's probably where Girls Girls Against God, at least the sort of idea of an underground network of non, non-males in sort of a subcultural artistic slash magical realm started perhaps. It also started with like having a lot of discussions when recording an album about making film. So none of the starting points of this book 
are literary. <laughs> and I think otherwise I wouldn't have been able to write because I feel like such an outsider when I write. I also feel like um, because I, I started out as a musician here in Norway, I feel like when I when Paradise Rot, my first book came out, and this is like 11 years ago, 12 years ago almost, I probably was, I felt like I was just seen as an, a musician trying trying to do some writing and wasn't really taken seriously. And that's how I feel when I write. So I need I need to focus on something that isn't literature, otherwise I won't write anything. But I, I, I think that when I when I can sort of see the stage as the page or or um a book as a film script, like it, that I I sort of have to see that image in my head of something that is transformed or can be transformed to something else. So yeah, I I, I, I do think that creates um at least a possibility for me to create a voice that is more collective or is more after a blasphemous community or an alternative community. And I'm not sure if that answers your question, but I mean, at least as a starting point to discussing it, I'm very curious as to what you're writing about now. Well, it's very much an alternative community of women who, who were very much despised by all the people who've written about them subsequently apart from me I think um it was it's a true crime case and it was set it happened in West London where I live um but all the women they were all sex workers and they were eight of these women were really brutally murdered really horribly murdered and left sort of in a state that showed uh, the world the killer's contempt for women in general, I think, with strang strangled with their own underwear and left naked in this quite bizarre pattern in and around the River Thames. Um, and I found out about this case because somebody wrote a true crime account of it about 10 years ago. Somebody who had had access to the Metropolitan Police files, which were supposedly sealed and were supposedly not for public consumption but he had obviously seen enough to be able to write in graphic detail what had happened to these women um these eight women and I realized when I was writing it that they all lived and worked around where I've lived for the past 30 years so the geography is really important although their bodies are left along the Thames they all lived in nearly all of them or they all certainly worked in Labrick Grove which which now is like you see the film Notting Hill and you think oh it's this swish, lovely, cottagey place for middle-class people. But at the time this happened, it was at the time Absolute Beginners was written by Colin McInnes. And, uh, yeah, he has this, I'm going to just try and find this really fantastic. It was basically the biggest red-light district in London. And to add to, to that, there was all the immigrants that had arrived from the West Indies were living in very ramshackle accommodation. The only landlord who would have them there was a Polish Jewish refugee from World War II. He was the only person who showed them any sort of compassion. Peter Rackman, who, who'd gone down in history as a villain, but I think was actually the least villainous of some of the landlords around there. And they're living in this strange, shifting, seedy world uh, where there was a lot of pop artists lived there. And one of my characters was based on this pop artist, Pauline Beatty, who 
he's a, another person who's been sort of lost to history and has only recently started to get recognised for the work she did, but she is a contemporary of Peter Blake and Derek Bisha and went to the Royal College at the same time. So you've got the pop artists living there, you've got people like Colin McInnes and Colin Wilson living there. It's a really shifty, shading mix. And I really felt these women, that expression really defined how the strength and solidarity of despised women they did try and help each other, these women. They knew their community was under attack from a mysterious predator. And one of the, the hardest things to work out was was how he got their trust and got them to go with him. So it's a whole mystery that I wanted to recreate. And yeah, and that's that just that phrase and what, what you've said in your book about, you know, women being called witches if 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 you want to put them down. It all sort of resonated with me. Yeah, I mean I guess I guess it's if, even if I don't write about, I mean, I, I feel like sometimes I, I, my, my book doesn't even have people in, um, or the, the collect, like there is a sing, like a singular voice or a singular character who's the protagonist, but there is also sort of underlying, I guess, I guess I want to call it community, um, choir or something of, of maybe witches, maybe outcasts, maybe because, because when witches are described, it's it's interesting to see how closely related um, descriptions of of women historically um, sort of cross paths. It's not far from prostitution to witchcraft. I mean, it's <laughs> the descriptions are so fictional anyway because it's it's they're describing themselves or the, the 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 gaze is describing itself rather than anyone else. You're describing your own drive. You're describing society's guilt or whatever describing religion describing society and you put the blame on on the female body that's that sort of seems to fit at the time the people in society who have the least say get vilified the most basically yeah yeah and this is just something that you know i have explored through all my novels and it seems to be something that you explore in your work as well is you know how women who are at the bottom of the heap financially socially how they can make their way and and get out of, of their assigned roles or where, where they should as society would like them to stay how they can rise above and and often it is the case that it's through either artistic endeavor or it's through some kind of association with witchcraft spiritualism the other side shall we say this this is how they you know how they make their way by having i guess knowledge and talents that are sought after and that, that they can use to rise above. And is that something that you think you've been able to do through your music and your writing? I think that was definitely a motivation. And I felt like that I, I could find, or I could find a place at least that I wanted to belong to through artistic endeavours, through attempts, through like infiltrating networks that that were not so hierarchic or placed differently in the hierarchy of that is society even the art world i mean i've i've never been um i've many times had to sort of wonder about how much of a recluse i am even within the arts community because i'm i'm, I'm i think i'm always wanting to sort of stay an outsider in a way rather than i'm i'm never comfortable with with people with power, even if they're the nicest people, even in the art industries, I'm always a bit scared 
And I, th- I think it's not just being scared. It's also about skepticism towards all sort of forms of display of power, I guess. Um, so for me, even when I didn't really know what was what, and I just started reading sort of, you know, randomly at the library, things that seemed part of a um, sort of separate canon or a non-canon or a canon that was more um, postmodern maybe. I was sort of looking for the, for that, looking for a, a different reality, different way of describing things, different language, and also different future. I mean, I guess that's a natural thing when you know that reality doesn't work and it's not real anyway. There, there must be other things to be drawn to and other timelines and other connections. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, just, I'm really interested in how much music plays that this spark of your of your inspiration came from your music because when one of the things that really helped me to go back in time to the late 50s early 60s was I looked up what was number one in the charts when each of these women had been murdered and it gave me this really quite catholic and really interesting timeline of of music that was you know it goes from roulette by Russ. Conway, who was a legendary six-fingered pianist, he was very much involved in the sort of strange underworld of London clubs at the time, because he was secretly gay. This is one of the big things about this whole book, is it, it's got a lot to do with the suppression of various sexualities and um, and how the high highs rolled with the low lows because they had certain things in common and, and the, these illicit clubs was where they met. So so he he's the first one, and that's quite amazing what I found out about him subsequently as well. And the next one is You'll Never Walk Alone, which Jerry Marston has just passed away. And that his theme song, but and you think, oh, that's like a sentimental football terrorist song. But then you think, if a serial killer's walking behind you, you don't want to never walk alone. And and so it goes on needles and pins by this purchase, which is quite a spooky little one. Can't buy me love with by the Beatles when it comes to sex workers. Mm. A World Without Love, again written by Paul McCartney by Peter and Gordon, which quite a sinister one by McCartney there. Please lock me away and don't allow the date to come. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Then probably the most ominous one, The House of the Rising Sun by the Animals, followed by Baby Love by the Supremes. The last one, really sad, you've lost that loving feeling by the Righteous Brothers. So that sums up, doesn't it? That holds weird, to me anyway, the 60s before it began to swing, the end of the Cold War going into to swinging London and the, the sort of mix of Merseyside, Motown, p- piano, Russ Conway's like music hall and the strange mix that was in the air in those times. And and I also used the songs of Joe Meek and I put him in the story. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, because Great. he... He was living and working in this place at the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's yeah, cool. It's interesting that some some of these songs are quite, even if they seem like big hits, they're also quite mysterious. Because there was a um, "You'll Never Walk Alone" special on Norwegian radio. Even that's how that's how well known that is. Um, and I listen to the radio all day because of the puppy, because it's always on, so that she's used to sound. And I was just thinking about how, like, it, it is actually quite an intricate melody and harm like harmonic track and that sort of makes it much more sort of haunted with 
obviously with the lyrics, which I find find really spooky. <laughs> and also remind me of like childhood religion, being taught about how Jesus is always following you and being super scared because that's how I would react. But yeah, that, it, there's a lot of mysticism to a lot of those songs. I mean, in to, to, to a lot of music that is very, very melodic and a lot of music from that era is obviously like, in the 60s, extremely melodic and quite sometimes quite advanced. It creates a real sort of mystery to an era, which I really sort of appreciate going back to because there is a lot of suppression in that era too that you were talking about, and it kind of goes hand in hand. I mean, there's a lot of hidden hidden energy in, in a harmonic change in a song. Everything means something. That's what I find. Now I'm going to sound like I'm 70 or 80 years old, depending on 70 or 80, one of those. But, but I find that that, that is, that is some, something that is lacking from a lot of um, music right now. There, there's so much music that we're, nothing much is happening um, harmonically. And so I wonder, where is the repressed stuff? <laughs> where has it gone? <laughs> Is it all in the production or is do we just pretend we live in an era without repression and then, you know, we have these crazy people going into the Congress two days ago? Yeah, absolutely. I know. It, all music does sound really um, manufactured to me at the moment. You know, not all music, obviously, but mainstream music. And one of the really sinister things about, you know, American radio used to be so brilliant. And there used to be all these little pockets of local radios playing local musicians. And that's how brilliant music, there was that boom in, in the 50s and 60s with people, you know, it was because they were listening without prejudice. They couldn't see what the person was, looked like. They just heard good music and went on that. And I think that was the earlier part of the American century. But I read um, in a book recently that during the Bush era, all those local radios got taken over and now there's just one central playlist playing the same boring music. Across the whole of that massive country, it makes you feel so depressed that manufactured music, and maybe that's partly why people are so angry because they're not getting any, any proper musical nourishment anymore. They're not, you know, this music isn't telling part of their story like it used to be in the past. It's not come from the traditions of all the different types of people who came to America, they all brought different stories and, and songs and traditions with them. And Yeah, I mean, even even if they had a bunch of radio and media, I mean, the society was so heavily censored and who was able to be heard was also... The radio the gave them their freedom, so, like, yeah. You know, it's so incredible. Like, it, it's, hard, it's hard to say that the past had had greater diversity i'm not sure if there was more diversity but there were more chords maybe yeah. because people who had more education wrote them which is cool about what's you know like present present day that the people a wider sort of like it, it is in a way more representative what you what you can hear it's just that it's also so commercialized that it's representing pretty much nothing most of the time yeah I know, and that's why I think you're very wise to be so wary of the music industry in general, because I think it is a really dangerous place. I'm not even sure if it really exists at this point. It might just be some kind of evil magic. Um, I'm, I'm. It's you know, it's interesting to think about right now. 
I'm not sure like how this is with literature because literature as an art discipline can still exist, whereas performing arts of all kinds and, and live music, I mean, they don't exist at all, which makes me think maybe they never existed or maybe they definitely did not really exist as a any kind of free expression in the years leading up to the pandemic because of so like such an incredible i don't know like di direction of of neo capital like neo um liberal capitalist exploitation yeah it does people have felt even greater need to tell stories i mean i've been a sort of strange beneficiary of this because i i've started I got some work before the pandemic started doing online workshops with people, novel writing workshops. And since the lockdown, everyone, you know, what can you do? You sit at home, you want to tell a story. And these people are finally, who have been locked into this, this system of get up really early, have a long, grueling journey into work, work, work really hard, go home, you know, maybe have a few hours to eat and before you fall asleep ready for the next day suddenly they're free from all of that um we've gone back to a sort of cottage industry in a way so those people that were able to got furloughed used their time they wanted to use it productively and they wanted to go back to storytelling and there's there's you know it's really interesting i've been privileged to sort of see the response to the pandemic through all these people's writing and and how um they're sort of using it to sort out you know people have been doing these clearing up the houses but they've been clearing up their memories as well i think and sort sorting all the things that have ever bothered them out into to some sort of order and what i personally love about writing is how it is a form of alchemy so you turn all the bad shit that's ever happened to yourself or to other people who you feel really affected by into some kind of if it's not gold at least it's turned it into something else and those things worry you a lot less after you I don't know if you feel this way when you come to the end of a book you think oh that baby's born now and it can go out into the world and live on its own and and sort of haunt me no longer I don't think I've written enough I, I don't even think I remember how I feel <laughs> well Tom can you tell me a bit about why you put Munk and his <laughs> Munk and the black metal and the black metal references in because that's a really interesting part of Norwegian history, the berserkery that happened there with all those. Well, I think it was always there. So I felt like it's, it, it's I mean, it, it's always been part of, partly connected. I think there has been like a very concrete inspiration, especially with the, um, the face paint and some of the imagery and also just the fact that he is the most famous visual artist to have come out of Norway. So Black metal was started mainly by very, very young people who then probably had been to school and learned about pretty much nothing else than Monk when it comes to art. And so did I. He's just one of those almost religious figures that exist in the Norwegian imagery, Norwegian subconscious, conscious. But one day I remember I saw the... I mean, I was I was doing some kind of research already before I started writing. I was doing some black metal research because I I came a little too late to black metal, so I'd never really listened to much of it. At the time, I was probably at least five to ten years younger than the people involved in the scene. So 
I never really got to hear a lot of the the famous recordings until much, much later. And I was doing some research and then I found this very quite famous press photo of Mayhem, which is which to me was like instant connection to a monk painting because it was so similar and it was very creepy. And I, I, I remember I made this collage and for a long time it was, it was the front page of my book in my own document, just a sort of a reminder of how closely connected black metal is to Edward Munch. Maybe they, maybe they even wanted to be him. Like let's create music that could be this because it's also extremely motivated by sort of inexplicable emotional response and the need to just be really ugly, really do something really ugly, really not out of the ordinary, but like otherworldly, ugly, repulsive, you know, like opposite of what is considered good art or proper behavior, which is, you know, kind of um, quite an, common trait to subcultural existence, I guess, or expression. Unfortunately, no parents know this. I mean, there should be some kind of parental education where you just learn that, oh, your kid is doing crazy stuff with pig's blood. Oh, you know, it's just, it's a, it's a common trait to any youth's exploration of subcultural. Let him do that instead of marching into the Congress 10 years later wearing stupid costume, scavenging the internet. So, yeah, the monk connection, I think, for me, it's just very obvious and also probably to the black metal scene, like a lot of them, it would be very obvious just because he's such a pillar of Norwegian art, I guess. I mean, now we have the new monk museum, which seems to never open because of the building never being finished and also pandemic. But it's literally like leaning over the city because it's built in this spooky haunting. It's like yeah, haunting the city. Wow. There is nothing else. This is the biggest. It's leaning. That's amazing. So if you're doing art, he's over your shoulder. You know, you'll never walk alone. Wow, wow. And how much do you think of the, that sort of black and white, the corpse paint, is to do with it being a world that is half the year in light and half the year in dark? Do you think that well, it, feeds- does, it does seem like? Maybe it has more to do with life and death and how you're always part dead when you're alive and the other way around, the dead in the living and the living in the dead. Yeah. Um, But I think that when, I mean, my, my experience with half, half the year being very bright is that it's full of color Mm. and then it's very, it's kind of gray or white in winter. Mm. So it's black and black and white is winter to me, and color is the summer. So I'm not sure, but I mean, it sounds good. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so actually, yeah, you've got Munk in the black metal band, and I've got Joe Meek in his weird. Well, it this sort of leaps back a bit to what you were saying about how some music from the '60s sounds really advanced. Because when the first Jack the Stripper, the reason he's in my book is the night the first Jack the Stripper victim, Elizabeth Thig. She was last seen in Holland Park outside the tube station. Across the road from there is, is this big recording studio where 
and it started off as a, an artist studio um, in Victorian times, and then it was taken over in, in the 50s by this guy called Dennis Preston, who had a jazz label. And one of his engineers was Jay Meek. And mm. Jay, Jay produced the single Bad Penny Bleeds in, in that building for Humphrey Littleton and gave him a, a top 10 hit with this song that wow. I think that at the time Humphrey didn't like it because he wanted, he was trad and he wanted to sound like Louis Armstrong. Mm. But, but Jay, put the drums right to the fore. So mm. it's got this really fun. Paul McCartney definitely heard it because Lady Madonna is the same tune virtually mm. as as this, as Bad Penny Blues. And anyway, but while he was working in there, he he was stealing bits of downtime in the studio to make this album called I Hear a New World, which I don't know if you've ever heard this record. You mean it's, the Dermic? Yeah, the Joe Meek record, yeah. Do you know it? I have heard it, but I'm not sure if I remember which... It's hit this really spooky electronica, Joe, and it's got like all these weird voices of Martians and because he was quite obsessed with the space race, which was really a yeah, big yeah, thing. Yeah. I have and heard it. The idea that he was making these really weird sounds and in my head, this opened a portal and through it came this Jack the Stripper, this evil force. And, and so when I wrote the first chapter, I was listening to Joe and sort of soundtracking the footsteps of the woman doing her last walk to her last ride to those sounds. So, yeah, so like you, all the stuff that I've written has sort of started off being music in a way, even though I'm not a musician myself. What I find really interesting about Joe Meek as a reference is that the, the so much of his sound sounds like science fiction or it's... Um, processed or it's it's looped or it comes from um from a tape machine so it's kind of otherworldly it's like not of this world yeah it, again it's this kind of to me it's instantly a safe place or or a, a place that full of hope in a way because it's it's beyond or or somewhere else um, yeah. taking sound somewhere else like non that definitely not wanting to sound analog or it, not analog is the wrong word but definitely not wanting to sound like just sound in a in on a, in a on an acoustic instrument that has this ability to sort of jump into space yeah like telstar it still sounds brilliant doesn't mm. it it's, it still sounds like he's beaming it off the satellite and what i find really interesting as well is Sometimes if you have a random shuffle, a Joe song will come on and I think, is it Joe or is it Pink Floyd? Sometimes it's really difficult to tell the difference. <laughs> That's how far ahead of his time he was. And I think sort of, yeah, Joe. And that's the reason I got to go to Norway was because my friend Pete Woodhead, he was a proper musician. Me and him did a soundtrack that I could do readings from this book to. And mm-hmm. I met this fantastic, oh, you might know him actually, Leif, Leif Eckler, who works for NRK, who is a radio journalist. Yeah. He was uh, in London at the time when I was doing this, and he was a fan of Derek Raymond. He was one of my crime writing heroes. And he, I took him to some of Derek Raymond's hangouts in, in Soho, and he came to see me do this thing with Pete having supplied, in a very Joe Meek style, we did all the little foley sounds together, like I put on high heel shoes and how it sounds to walk down the road. And then we wanted that David Lynch lighting a lighter effect. That <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so we made all these little fairly sounds and then he made this quite sort of meeky, mm-hmm. jazzy soundtrack for me to eat to. 
And Leif got over to Oslo and he started a thing on an NRK for other people to to do this. So it, it was really brilliant. So thanks to Joe and Bad Penny Blues, I got to see your beautiful world journey. And that's why, sorry if I'm repeating myself, but I just love these links between, like you said, the living in the depth the music and the literature and other arts and uh, you work with that brilliant filmmaker Zoe Anger I looked at that fantastic film you made with her with the mother with her mother in it as well how inspiring was that <laughs> well that was really great I mean I was I was not with her at any point but it was I mean I've worked with Zia for a long time and we seem to have um, a connection where we just keep doing things that are intertwined, even if we don't know about it. It's just really wonderful to have this this kind of friendship, this connection, and also this ability to... I, I just find it like such a huge gift to have someone to send music to, and then she'll have ideas that I never thought of, but are also like really connected to what I do. It's such a way... I mean, if, if only it would be, you know, it's like it's a huge deal for me just to see how much value she can pull out of my work. And um, that in itself is so amazing to be seen in that way. And I think that's, that's, one of the, that's one of the most rewarding and maybe interesting parts of collaboration, the fact that you can create value or like that you can value someone else's work and then sort of bring out common ideas because that's, that, that makes something really worthwhile. I mean, I generally think that music videos are not worth making because it's such an old format. Um, I always think that it, it's it's not. Why do we need them at this time? I don't understand why people still make music videos. But I love working with her. So, and I think that she manages to see things that are much more clever than I could in my music, and then I can have um, my work sort of come along, come along with her work, which is really amazing. So I remember we were discussing it while I was on tour back when we were on tour, you know, like when people could travel in the good old world. Yeah. And she wanted me constantly to film stuff while traveling. And so it became this really fun collaboration. And I don't think any of it really ended up in the music video, but it was still such a rewarding process. And I think that there's always the conversation. That's the most important part. Because that keeps sort of things keep developing, and you're not. It's easier to just keep pushing what what things actually mean. I mean, I like to work from the inside out, like writing a bunch of stuff, writing lots of lyrics, and I don't know why I write them or what they are about. And then I'm always asked what things mean and why I wanted to say this or that, and it's very difficult to answer because. I didn't want to say anything. You know, I think it's like that probably for a lot of people who want to tell stories that they don't have like, oh, I have this story and I want to tell it. But it's it has to sort of change you. Like you have to be changed by writing. And so if anything, that's what you want. You want to be changed and change some part of your world or the world or these big things by by uttering something. Yeah, it's a constant process of learning new things, isn't it? And and reaching and hearing new voices as well. I mean, some of what I write, I don't feel that like I wrote it. It just came through me. You know, I was a handy receptor. 
shall we say. And I know a lot of people feel that way about writing fiction. Sometimes a character will come through like it was a seance and they will just take over. But they'll be a very important person in the book. So when you create music, it must kind of feel like other forces are coming through you. And I, I imagine it's the same for when a really brilliant bit of music comes through to a really good bit of writing. You don't really realise you've done it. It just, it just comes through. There was never any work done. It was just this, yeah, seance. Even though that sounds so, those words sound really big and it sounds like you want to talk about yourself as a genius, but I think the the seance itself is not actually that mysterious. It's just another way of saying that you sort of let your yourself be a blank canvas and things were happening in the room. It could be very simple and not very genius at all, if anything, allowing a more collective energy to flow through in words. Sometimes I feel that way about one line, you know, or one like chord change or one word. And that sometimes for me is enough to justify the rest of a track that may, may maybe is, isn't well composed from all the way through, but has a moment of change. Yeah. That's so true. And that's why that accident video was so brilliant because I didn't feel like it was a music video to promote a track. I felt like it was a, a movie to go with what you put into that. It was like a little beautifully crafted mini movie of what was behind the expression in that song. Yeah, and I think I think it was, which is why it was nice to have it as a music video after all because it's such a – for me, it's like an emotional release to watch it. I'm not sure how it's like what it's like for the rest of the universe, but not that they've seen it. <laughs> but it's sort of this moment of clarity or seeing a bunch of situations come together and mean something. Like, you know, with Zia using one of her mothers in the film and having this element of mime which I think works. She's so brilliant. Mm. She's a proper mime artist. She's got an amazing face as well. You just want to just keep looking at her. And the settings were brilliant. Yeah, it's also brilliant that Zia's very good at expanding on the sort of humorous aspects of my work, which I remember early on when I was only doing, playing for Norwegian audiences and releasing my work in my own country the humorous aspect would be completely overlooked. And I think that happens a lot when people are afraid of someone's voice. Not not to make myself so important, but it's a very general thing. Humor is overlooked and seen as wanting to seem important or or being s- too serious. Yeah, or Crazy um, other. So it's really interesting how Zia manages to pair my my work with something that is very much like a living canvas, very much almost, I wouldn't, I would almost call it sometimes oh, slapstick. Yeah. And at the same time satirical, but like just this really wide canvas of human expression, which I think the Mayim aspect and her mom brings in. Mm, yeah. I know it gets a really good point about humour because you have to, you can't approach this dark material without having a certain graveyard humour to and and actually, you can't even survive life without having a certain graveyard humour. I don't no. think it's it's our weapon against the world, basically, yeah, isn't yeah. it? And uh, yeah, and it's not something that gets picked up. I know one of my favourite 
authors, Hilary Mantel, and her, finally, she gets the recognition she is due with the full trilogy. But no one's actually said those books are hilariously funny all the way through, as well as being profound, brilliant works of magicking us through a Holbein painting into Henry VIII's world. They're absolutely hilarious. Mm. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I think there is a common thread of this to our work as well, at least I hope there is. <laughs> Well, can I also say one of my other favourite quotes about your work? Sure. Actually came from somebody I used to work with, an old friend, Sharon O'Connell, who I used to work on Melody Maker with. And she said in The Guardian that what really stood out for her was that your words shock, not because they're about sex and desire, but because they're about vulnerability and longing. And I thought that was a really good point she made. Do you think that? Is that valid? Of course, yeah, yeah. I remember even going back to my work many times, like different things, but may- maybe more than anything, my first novel, Paradise Rot, and I did not remember that it had much sexual, sensual content at all. I just remembered it being very sort of driven and about longing and if not vulnerability, maybe more like <laughs> dissolution, <laughs> but, but um, com- complete decomposition, but also then obviously vulnerability because what is more vulnerable than something that is decomposing? Yeah, so, so I, I many times sort of forget that on the surface level, things get much more seemingly sexual or seemingly like, I don't know which words to use, but the, the provocative all these things. And then I find myself when I am writing, just wanting to create links and different types of linkages between people, objects, gazes, perspectives, arts of hierarchies, just basically wanting to create more like webs of belonging and common ideas and sort of getting, getting together and feeling um, communal energy. And I guess the, the words, maybe some of the words I'm looking for when I write don't exist or don't exist yet. So you're stuck with something that will be interpreted as as a more being more about sexual desire. Yes, well, we can make up our new words. I mean, Shakespeare did quite a bit of that, didn't he? <laughs> but now they're just Shakespearean words. But he did make words up that, that, yeah. that weren't there. So I think yeah. we can, we just carry on. I've, I try and put a new word into all my books that, that no one said before. See if it catches on. <laughs> just because I like playing around with words so much, actually. But no. And the other thing I wanted to ask you about was, at the moment, I've been reading this amazing book by Stacey Schiff about the Salem witch trials, what actually happened. It is brilliant. This seems so appropriate. The Witches, Salem, 1692, a history. It's the Witches, Salem, 1692. And just, you know, events of recent days. This madness is bubbling to the surface. And it sort of brings me back to the witches in your novel and and how I've written about witches in mine as well. Not this one, but others. But I really wanted to ask you, what was your first discovery of witches? How did you come upon the concept of witches and what they were in the first place? I don't think I remember, but maybe reading mythology in childhood and reading about 
mythological characters that were witches, probably. And then a lot of bad TV series. And then being a goth, learning a lot in the early online days about Wicca. So in my in my sort of late teens, I was quite interested. But I couldn't get it to match my interest in modern slash postmodern literature because it seemed like it was dirty and, and sort of unrefined compared to what I should be reading and what I should be doing. So I strayed from the path. I was interested but decided to stick with the cool canon of whatever it was, reading Beckett or whatever. <laughs> Joyce. I don't know. No, it's, it's just makes me wonder because I was a massive goth as well. And But when I was really little, my mum used to take me to see all the Disney films and she pointed out that all the queens, the evil queens, Maleficent, and, and they were the beautiful, clever ones. And you, you wouldn't want to be stupid you know, bumbling Snow White when you could be Queen Maleficent with a raven on your arm. And, you know, I mean, and so it always seemed really interesting to me that even though we're, you know, Disney is this sugary, sweet world, the best characters were the evil women, which is. And then I also just remember my favourite book when I was little was called The Wickedest Witch in the World by Beverly Nichols and about a witch who just lived in a suburban house and she looked like she was about 20, but in fact, she was hundreds of years old. But she put her makeup on so well that she's always been an inspiration to me, <laughs> Miss Smith. I mean, there's lots of fairy tales, which Disney comes from and purifies. <laughs> um, well, Maleficent, she seems quite a Norwegian witch to me, Queen Maleficent, with mm-hmm. her raven. Maybe so. No, I, can't, I actually can't remember like the very first encounter I had. And it was probably quite negative, I would think, for a long time until the more sort of... It's it's nice how internet brought a lot of different things together for me because I remember at the same time as I was reading about pagan theories, um, Wicca stuff, I was also starting to illegally download music, which also was like quite witchy to me. Yes, a strange hearing, breeze. Hearing B-sides of artists I really loved and seeing seeing and downloading videos as well, music videos, and all that seemed like witchcraft to me. So, And that appears also, I guess, in my book, this idea of the internet as witchcraft, or at least, I mean, definitely not now, but potential is there. So I, I got a bit obsessed when I was writing with creating the different, the, the, the other internet. That was flesh based. <laughs> Which I still think could be a pretty good movie, but maybe from nineteen ninety something and not now. Well, I just say you've got many many magical ingredients going on mm. in your pot, Jenny, and long <laughs> may you prevail. Yeah. No, and this has been brilliant because I now feel like I've been in a room with you both and we've just been having a really good warm chat. Thank you. Thank you. And it's lovely to meet you both. Yeah, likewise. Thank you for listening to the MIT Press Podcast and thank you to Jenny and Cathy for taking the time out to have that wonderful discussion. If you don't want to miss out on the content we produce on the podcast, which features artists, scientists, writers, academics in discussion, make sure to hit subscribe on your medium of choice. Also, thank you to Samantha Doyle, who mixes and edits the podcast, and Kristen Galano, who produced the soundtrack.